My name is Andrew, I'm part of the team here, and um, just want to say that um, even though you've been given uh, notes, um, unfortunately I won't be sticking to them. Um, unfortunately, as, you, as already been said, Rhiannon was not very well, and uh, so at the last minute I, I've willingly stepped in. Now, over the next couple of weeks, um, we're actually going to have a look at uh, the book of James. And uh, before I kick off uh, chapter one of James, I just want to mention one or two things about James, the author of the book. Um, who is James? Well, there's four or five people in the New Testament whose name is James. But most commentators agree that actually the James that wrote the book called James is, in fact, the brother of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but it's... One thing, having a brother who's a little bit smarter than you, or a bit better looking than you, or a bit stronger than you, but to have a brother who is literally the son of God, God himself in flesh. Well, I don't know about you, but I think there's some pressure there, don't you? Um, when, when we actually look at the scriptures about, uh, about James, it appears to us that sort of James didn't get converted until after Jesus' resurrection. It was actually when James saw Jesus after in his resurrected state that he recognized his brother as the Savior. And James himself was no lightweight, you know. He was the man that headed up the church at Jerusalem. He was the one that dealt with some of the kind of deep theological problems that were created by the Jews who wanted to add stuff to the gospel. In particular, they wanted to add this to the gospel. Say, yeah, you can, you can believe in Jesus as a savior, but you also have to be circumcised as well in order to be totally saved. It was, it was, it was James that actually dealt with those things. He must have been a deeply spiritual man, therefore, in order to sort of deal with these in place of the apostles. But, you know, one thing I, I always think about when I think about James is this. I always think of James as a real practical man. When, when I read the book of James, it, it kind of, it reads like the New Testament version of Proverbs. It, it kind of, it's a manual for living. It, it kind of teaches us basic stuff about Christianity. It talks about how we can profit from trials, how we can deal with temptations, how we can really sort of step out in faith and what faith really looks like. It tells us how we can sort of use the tongue to bring people up uh, rather than down, how we can use the tongue to bring glory to God and not simply sort of uh, use it in a destructive manner. It actually tells us, you know, how to pray effectively. This is a great practical book. For me, it's down-to-earth, heavenly wisdom that we as Christians need if we're going to survive in today. It really is. So I want to read to you just a portion of, of James 1. Listen to this. This is, this, is, this is the crux, I think, of what I'm going to speak on this morning. So I'm not going to read the whole of James 1. It's just the first uh, uh, few verses. James a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice that he doesn't say James, eh, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think if I was writing this, I would say, Andrew, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, no, I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a humble man. This is a humble man who's writing this book. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing or not lacking in any good thing. Two weeks ago, I kind of preached on um, New Year's resolutions. Can you remember that? Um, 
And I said 92% of people who make New Year's resolutions actually never, never kind of complete them. 8% only complete them. And uh, I think one of the reasons for that is that problems and trials and tribulations and challenges come, and, and they can easily derail us despite our best intentions. And so this morning, on the back, if you like, of, of my last preach, I want to, to look at how we can deal with some problems and the challenges that come our way. And today I want to suggest that we have an alternative. We have two alternatives. We have a choice. We can either see our problems as pitfalls or we can see our problems as platforms. Pitfalls or platforms. So initially, let's look at um, seeing our problems through the, through the viewpoint of pitfall. Now, what's a pitfall? Well, the it, uh, dictionary defines a pitfall as this. A pit flimsily covered or camouflaged that are used to capture and hold animals or men. You've seen it, haven't you? You know, sort of what happens is an animal comes innocently sort of along, along the sort of, I know, the jungle and, and he sort of suddenly walks over the camouflaged uh, uh, top of the pit and then suddenly he falls through into the bottom of the pit and he's in a deep, deep pit and he can't get out. That's what a pitfall is. That's what a pitfall is. Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that you're going to come along uh, any street in, in Cambridge and actually fall into a physical pit. But often we do find ourselves, don't we, having unexpected difficulties and unexpected problems to deal with. And we can easily feel trapped. We can easily feel that we're in a deep, deep pit and we can't get out. That's the nature of problems. And that's why sometimes we see problems as pitfalls. See, problems are inevitable. I never wake up in the morning and think, do you know what, I have to hunt now for a problem. Problems just come my way. It's, it's part of being here on planet Earth. Let me give you a couple of reasons why problems come our way. First of all, we live in a fallen world. This world is fallen. The way this world is organized is not like the kingdom is organized. And therefore, stuff comes our way whether we want it or not. We are actually fallen creatures. Believe it or not, you and I are not perfect. And therefore, sometimes problems come our way simply because of the things that we do and our own actions. Problems and difficulties come away because, listen, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. And sometimes problems come away simply because of this, that when we become Christians, we become a target. That was simply, when we become Christians you know, and step out, what happens is that we actually move into a different kind of territory. And therefore, as, as the scripture says, Jesus says this, as people per because people persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So sometimes trouble simply comes because we are believers. Job said this, a man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. To deny troubles, to deny trials, to deny the reality of them is, I think, to live in a totally different universe than most people that I know. But problems are not only inevitable, but they're actually unpredictable. Isn't it amazing sometimes when you sort of, kind of, everything's going well in, in, in your life and, and you think, oh, this is fantastic. Isn't it amazing how suddenly a, a, a problem comes, a trouble, a trial can come in, and you don't know where it's come from, and, and it blindsides you. It confuses you. And, 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 I, and I believe that's the kind of unpredictable nature of problems that cause us so much concern. When they come, when we don't realize where they're coming from or when they're coming, that's the very nature of problem. It unsettles us. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We are shaken by it. We are stirred by it. And, and we lose our spiritual equilibrium in it. 
Problems are not just inevitable, not just unpredictable, but they're various as well, isn't it? I mean, in scriptures there, it says, consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you fall uh, into trials of many kinds. Many kinds. Trials come in different sort of guises, don't they? You know, you can have a financial problem, financial trial, a relationship trial. You can have an emotional trial, you can have a spiritual trial. But the, but the thing about trials is this, there's nuances in it. There are nuances on tr in trials. So we could both be having, myself and someone else could both be having, say, financial problems, but this nuance because of who I am and who that person is. It's nuanced because their circumstances are slightly different from mine. And that's why when we go through problems, they feel so personal. It feels as if no one else is actually under, uh, undergoing such problems and undergoing such trials because there's nuances in trials that take into account our circumstances and take into account who we are. And it's easy, therefore, when we see sort of problems as inevitable, unpredictable, and various, and, and, that, and that they have a capacity to derail us, it's easy to see trials in terms of pitfalls. A psychologist by the name of Martin Seligman talks about three Ps in relation to how people respond to trauma and problems and difficulties. These are in your notes, these three Ps. Firstly, he talks about the concept of personalization. This is where, you know, when we're faced with, a, with a, 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 a problem or a trial or a difficulty, we say things like this, you know, I'm to blame. You know, if only I hadn't done that, if only I hadn't sort of said those things, if, if perhaps I had done something different, then, then the situation wouldn't be as it is. I don't know about yourself, but I've said that at times. I've said that at times, haven't you? If only, if only. We've all done it to a degree. But I tell you what, we can't afford to live in that. We can't afford to camp there. Do you know, if we, if, if we actually sort of camp there, then we end up with a life of regret, we end up with a life of guilt, we end up with a life of remorse. We, you know, it can actually destroy us. Do you know, there was a lady in my, in my last church, a very nervous lady, and um, every day she used to take her daughter to school and then bring her back. And uh, her daughter was eight, year, eight years old, and one day, she was late picking her up. And so she started to run towards the school. And her daughter, thinking, well, mum's not here, but I know the way home, it's not that far. I'll, I'll start walking home. And as she started to walk home, and her mother started to run to the school, her mother glanced at her, and she ran across the road, and bang, this eight-year-old kitty was killed by a white van. Her mum picked it up in her arms, and in the gutter, she just kind of wept over her kid. A natural response, isn't it? But you know what? That one incident destroyed her life. That one incident of that, that child dying spoiled her life. It destroyed her life. She never got over it. She blamed herself. If only. If only. If only I'd been a bit earlier. If only I didn't do this and didn't do that and left a bit earlier. I can understand how she felt. But you know, I tell you what, God doesn't want us to camp in that kind of experience because this lady's life was ruined. In fact, her husband left her because she, he couldn't cope with her coping with this. And her, her son walked out early, uh, early in, 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 uh, than he had planned to because he couldn't cope with her, with her grieving like this. In fact, her other daughter, she kept us so close that she never really grew up properly, never kind of experienced everything that God intended her, her to experience. Her life was destroyed because of personalization. 
And, he, and I, and I, I know it's hard, but you know, God doesn't want us to camp there. He really doesn't. The second P that uh, Seligman mentions is this, pervasiveness. This is where we say things like this when, when sort of trouble comes. Everything is terrible. You know, we get one problem that, that we're faced with and suddenly we say things like everything is terrible. You know, an illness comes, or when we lose our job, you know, that pain permeates every aspect of our life, and that one thing can actually shape everything, can color uh, and tint everything that we see. We end up saying things like, you know, nothing is going right in my life. In fact, not only is nothing going right, everything is going wrong in our life. We've all said that at times, haven't we? We've all said that to some degree. Sometimes our problems come our way, you know, not, they're not resolved quickly, and so sort of, you know, we kind of pushing through them. But all of us have said that. The problem is when we camp there, when we live there, we end up living a, a life lacking of joy and lacking of peace. We can't even afford to kind of, uh, you know, enjoy a, a situation because we are fearful that that situation will rapidly change and become worse, and therefore we defend ourselves, we protect ourselves in it. That's not the place where we need to camp as Christians. That's not why God wants us to camp. Finally, Seligman talks about the whole issue of permanence. This is where, when we have a problem, we say things like this. It will never, ever get better. This will always be terrible. We'll never get out of this. Nothing's ever going to change. Again, I don't know about yourself, I've been in that situation sometimes when, when intractable problems seem to kind of uh, never kind of get resolved and you can feel as if, you know, there's no hope, there's, there's no place, there's no way that we can sort of step forward into something new because nothing's ever going to change. It's an awfully dark place to be. It's an awfully dark place to be. We end up resigning ourselves to the situation and living permanently under the pressure of problems. And I don't know about yourself, but in those circumstances, we need to be very, very careful because you know, severe psychological problems can flow from that, from feeling of oppressed to being depressed. God does not want us to live like that. This is an uplifting preach, this, isn't it? Do you know, it's so easy, though, isn't it, when we find ourselves going down one of these paths, because, you know, that's how, that's how problems feel to us. But none of them actually are healthy. They all carry, if you like, an emotional and physical and often psychological risk to us. So how do we respond to problems that are inevitable, unpredictable, and varied? How do we respond to them? Well, how about this? Rather than seeing problems as a pitfall, where we are caught and trapped and can't get out, how about seeing them instead uh, of being in a pitfall, but a platform, a launching pad, if you like, for us to grow? How about actually seeing the problem in such a way that within the problem lies some kind of hidden potential that's designed by God to catapult us further on in his plans and his, his purposes? You know, we say quite glibly sometimes, all things work together for good. All things. That's the good, the bad, and the ugly. It work together for good. As a man thinks, the Bible says, so he is. Do you know, what we settle in our mind molds our mind. And what molds our mind eventually will mold our life. It really will. 
And therefore, we need a different perspective when it comes to understanding the nature and the purposes of problems in our lives. So I want to explore the verses that I read earlier on uh, this morning from the point of view of problems being a platform. Do you know, I believe with all my heart that we can often learn uh, a lot more about God and who we are uh, in our problems than we can when things are going well. In fact, that's what James believes. That's why James starts off this sort of uh, book by saying, listen, consider it pure joy, my brothers. Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I, I love that word pure joy. It actually means to rejoice exceedingly. It's a kind of jump up and down kind of joy. And I love the message. I don't normally quote the message, but I love the message kind of uh, way of putting it. The message puts it this way. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come from you at all sides. Hands up those who consider these kind of problems as a sheer gift. It, it, It kind of runs contrary to everything that we experience, isn't it? You know, it kind of runs contrary to all reason. It runs contrary to sort of all our natural inclinations to see, see problems as sheer gifts. But that's exactly what James is telling the, church, uh, the, the scattered tribes of, of Israel. That's what he's writing to them. Now, let me say this. James is not being flippant here. James is being deadly serious about this. He is. He is right into the scattered, dispossessed, lost people who've been sort of um, take, uh, who've been sort of, who's been fleeing from their homes. They're in real difficulties. He's, he's talking to people who are sort of persecuted. Are, he's talking to people who are oppressed, and yet he still says to them, "Listen, despite all these things, consider it pure joy. Consider it a sheer gift from God." You know, we might not be suffering the same as those who were scattered in, the, in that times. But you know, our problems are just as real to us as their problems were to them. They might be different. They might be emotional problems, health problems, family problems, relationship problems, work-related problems. It could be sort of spiritual problems. And do you know what? If James was here standing on this platform, do you know what he'd say? He said he would say exactly the same as he did when he penned the book. He said, listen, C3, consider it pure joy. See it as a sheer gift. Now you're thinking, Andrew, how on earth can you actually see problems and difficulties and trials as a sheer gift? If we go and see our problems and trials as a sheer gift, if you like, as a platform for growth, I believe that we need to understand that trials have a God-ordained but unfortunately often hidden purpose in them. They often have a hidden purpose in them. In the opening phrase of the book of James there, verse 2, it says this, consider. It uses a little word, consider. That word there is a kind of accounting word. It's kind of a financial term. It means to evaluate. What James is basically saying is this. Listen, when problems come against you, then you need a proper uh, uh, understanding and a proper evaluation of what those problems actually mean. The difficulty is when problems come to our doorstep, what happens? We have a huge emotional response to them, don't we? You know, we, we panic, we, we, our heart races, we end up sort of, sort of full of fear. Fear kicks in and, and we're sometimes paralyzed by them. Let me share you a story. And um, it's a true story, it's not made up. I had an accident once when I was in my last church. I was running a prayer meeting and uh, I got in my car and I pulled out, and as I was pulling out after this prayer meeting, um, a, a 
motorcycle came belting around the corner, hit the side of my car. And this, this, this guy was quite badly hurt. He broke his legs. And um, I was shocked by the whole affair, and uh, I, I settled it all through my insurance, etc. And then one day, um, I was actually down in Cambridge at the time, because Richard was working here um, in the church, and I came down and helped him paint the house that he just bought. I'm still doing that now. I'm still, every time he has a house, I take my paintbrush with me, because, you know... I end up painting it. But anyway, I was there, and then suddenly I had a telephone call from Amanda. And Amanda said, listen, I've got a letter from, I forget what the name of the magistrate court was, but it was a, a magistrate court in Wales somewhere. And I thought, oh, what's that? I've done nothing wrong in Wales. And um, sort of, uh, uh, and she, I said, open it, open it. So she opens it, and in that letter, um, this guy's solicitor, the one with the broken leg, has actually said, I'm going to sue you. And then he listed all the things that he was going to sue me, and it came to £125,000. Now, I didn't have a penny to my name. My house wasn't worth £120,000. I had, I had two kids and a wife to support, and suddenly, do you know what? Fear struck. Fear struck. And there's a real sinking feeling in my stomach. But you know, the weird thing was this. The weird thing was this. When I was taking that phone call, I was watching the TV, and there was an advert and a little jingle on there, and perhaps you can remember the advert. It said something like this, wheelbuyanycar.com. Have you seen that advert, wheelbuyanycar.com? And do you know what? Every time, for months and months after that, this advert came on, what happened is I kind of replayed the kind of same emotions that I had when Amanda rang through. For months and months it went on. It was like an auto-response to it. So, you know, I was like a Pavlovian dog. You play, they played the jingle, and immediately I felt like, like, you know, my stomach was full of fear, and I, I felt, oh, gosh, you know, what am I going to do? I, it was awful. It was an auto-response. But that's what happens when we're in, when we're in trouble. We, are, we go into an auto-response, don't we? We go into an auto-response. And we end up then in one of these three Ps that I spoke about earlier on. So what should our response be? What should our response be? Well, the word there was consider. If you remember, the word was consider, evaluate. But we need to consider and evaluate what's happening to us. But in terms of who God is, what his word says, and what possible hidden, preordained purposes there may be in the problem that we're facing. So let's revisit those three Ps that we spoke about earlier on uh, this morning. What about this personalization? I want to ask you this. Is it really always our fault entirely? Very rarely is that the case. But the enemy will convince you that it is. But you know what? Even if it is, God does not want us to live in the sorrow and the bitterness and remorse and sadness of that stuff. Listen to what he says. He says, listen, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's what it says. We haven't got to camp there. We haven't got to live there under that personalization of the problem. What about the second P, pervasiveness? Is everything really terrible in our lives when a problem comes? I don't think so. It feels that way, but the reality is it's not. The Word of God tells me this, to count my blessings. Count our blessings. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We haven't got a camp in that, in that pervasiveness, that, that sensation that, that everything is terrible. The scriptures doesn't want us to camp there. What about the permanence? Will things always be so bad? 
The answer is no, it won't always be so bad. The word of God tells me that that which he's begun to work in me, he will bring to completion. That's what the scripture says. He, 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 he wants us to prosper. He wants to give us a hope and a future. That's what the scripture said. See, we need a new perspective. We need one that sees beyond the pain into the very purposes for which God has allowed the trial to come into our life. That's what we need. Now, I'm not saying that we should sort of thank God for the trial. But I think we can thank God that he's going to be with us in the trial. That's the key. Thanking God that he's going to be with us in the trial. Listen, the Bible says this. Give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances. Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. You know, when we know that God's hand is in our problems, when we know that God's ordained purposes are in them, then we can see our problems as a platform, as a catapult into the greater uh, uh, dimension of the plans and purposes that God has for our life. Then we can see them as a catapult. Then we can see them as a launching pad for growth. Let me give you three God-ordained purposes for our trials, which will help us understand what I mean when I talk about trials being a platform that can, that can catapult us forward. First of all, trials are a platform for proving and improving our faith. Verse 2 says this, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now listen, why does God need to test our faith? Listen, God is all-knowing, isn't he? He knows the level of faith that I have. Listen, God doesn't test our faith because he doesn't know it. He wants to test our faith so that we can be confident in it. It's for our benefit. It's for our benefit. See, faith really is, is a position where we trust Christ for something. It could be our salvation. It could be power. It could be for healing. It's a position where we actually put our trust in Jesus. It's not about just knowing about Jesus. See, there is a false faith that sometimes deludes us. Listen to what it says in James 2.19. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. But the devil, the demons, they're not trusting Christ for anything, are they? It's a false faith. It's a false faith. They, they, they're not trusting her. They're not trusting God for anything. Do you know, we need to be confident in our faith. Remember David... And what I struck about David when he hit Goliath right in the middle of the head and took him out, what, I really, what really struck me about David is he was confident in his faith. And the reason he was confident in his faith, because he had proved it previously. He had proved that God was a faithful God. He had to take out the lion and the bear. That's no easy task for a shepherd to take. But he took the bear and the lion out. He knew his God was real. He knew that his faith was real. So when Goliath came at him, he knew with confidence that his God is not going to let him down. And so he confidently stepped out in faith and took him out. I, want, I believe that God wants us to be people who take out the enemy. Who take out situations that come against us. But we can only do it when we are confident about our faith. Confident about our faith. Overcoming the trial of the lion and the bear, I believe, was the platform that launched David further into the plans and purposes of God. After he took out Goliath, guess what happened? People noticed that he was around. People noticed that he was around and he was invited uh, to, come a, uh, to come part of the circle of the, of, of the king. 
David knew that these trials worked for him and not against him. Someone once said this, Christians are like tea bags. It's only when you put them in hot water do you really know what's inside them. And it's true. You know, our, our, our problems, the difficulties that I face, you know, it, it's not to break us, it's to make us. It's to make us so we can understand where we stand in relation to faith. Sometimes when we're under pressure, we pray prayers like this, oh God, deliver me from this situation, please. Oh God, take me out. You know, I was thinking about the children of Israel just before the Red Sea. And um, I wonder if they would have crossed if they didn't have an army chasing behind them. I wonder if that problem pushed them over into another realm of faith. I, I suspect that they needed the army of Pharaoh chasing them down in order for them to kind of stand up and actually move across into the promised land. When God takes us into deep water, friends, it's not to drown us, it's to develop us. You know, we need to allow the, the kind of trials and tribulations that come our way to shape us and to mold us and to test our faith. It's good to be confident about your faith, isn't it? Because when the enemy comes, you want to be able to stand firm and confident in who you are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, trials are a platform for strengthening our patience and perseverance. The Word of God says, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance, made up of two words, per, which means through, and severance, which means severe. So the, the, the kind of picture here is that perseverance um, is carrying on its back like the idea that we kind of keep going even though there are difficulties. It's not just standing still, it's kind of persevering under duress. It's making, it's making progress even when things are difficult for us. That's what it means. It's moving forward, not keeping still. It's not passive, it's active. It's keeping going, keep going when things get tough. I believe that patience and perseverance is a key to spiritual maturity. I really do. And I say that because of this. I believe that patience um, is a character issue. It's not a competency issue. And uh, when things are a character issue, we need to take note because our character will determine whether or not we use or abuse our giftings. And so what I would say is this. Because it's a character issue, then we need to pay attention to it because it's vital. Because when we start uh, sort of uh, developing perseverance and developing patience, what it does, it maximizes the impact that our gifting actually allows us to have. So, for example, you can be the most gifted person in this room today, but you know what? If you've quit your post, then you have forfeited all the influence that you could possibly have by using your gift. But if you're gritty, if you stay the course, if you persevere, if you keep going, I want to tell you, that gift that God then has implanted into you can have massive influence. Do you see what I'm talking about? How, how important it is to understand what sort of uh, the nature of, of, of problems can do in our life? Listen, the only way that you can develop patience and character is to live through trials and difficulties and problems. You cannot get patience through reading about it in a book or listening even to a sermon like this. this one. You have to go through difficult times. The only way to develop patience is through sticking at things when they get sticky. It's as simple as that. You know, I do believe that we do need persevering Christians this morning. We, we are not going to take this city 
if we're not persevering, if we're not determined, if we're not going to be a people who are going to step out in faith and come what may keep going. Listen, we will not defeat the enemy by one little prayer or quoting a little scripture at him and hoping that somehow or other everything is going to happen. No, it's going to demand you and I persevering, pushing through, no matter what, and no matter what duress we're under, just keeping, keeping, and keeping, and keeping on going. That's what God wants for us. We need to stay with the program. We need to get gritty, and we need to move uh, forward in faith one step at a time. So often we just want to pray that God delivers us, don't we, when we're in problems? We just say, oh, God, take us out of this problem. It's too big for us, you know? Just, you know, just God, just do that for me, please. But, you know, sometimes God wants to do something in us and not just for us. He wants to create something deep within our spirit that causes us to be gritty Christians, to persevere in Christians. That's what God wants to do. I read somewhere about a guy, and he, and he said this, I don't pray for a lighter load. I pray for a broader back. And I thought, oh, come on. I don't pray for my problems to kind of disappear. I pray for a broader back so I can deal with them in your strength. That's the kind of people that God is looking for. That's why we can rejoice when our problems come. That's how we can, we can use them, because we can use them as a platform for growth. Finally, trials are a platform for maturity. Verse four, perseverance must finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Maturity actually is a, is a, an, a re- recurring theme in the book of James. Uh, it's actually mentioned five times. And the word used for maturity in, in the book of James is this, it's teleos. It actually means to be complete, to be a man of integrity, to be perfect, not lacking. So what James is saying is this. Listen, when we deal rightly with problems and challenges and difficulties that are thrown at us by considering their God-ordained purpose, and when we start by faith moving forward even under duress, when we start doing these things, then we'll become that person of consummate integrity and virtue. We'll become a mature, balanced, and grown-up Christian. Not lacking anything. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Don't you want to be mature, not lacking anything? I'm not talking about material stuff now. I'm talking about being the man and the woman that God's called you to be, fulfilling your potential in Christ Jesus, not lacking anything. Well, I tell you what, we, if, you're going to have, if you're going to end up there, then we have to come the route that Jesus went. See, Jesus went through trials, didn't he? He went through trials. He's the ultimate. He's the gold standard of maturity. And if we want to be like Jesus, then we too might need to take some of the hits that Jesus took. Jesus was lonely sometimes. That's a real problem for some people, isn't it? Loneliness. Oh, it it, it can be a killer. Disappointment. Hunger and thirst. These are the stuff that Jesus went through. Being ridiculed and rejected by those who claimed to love him. At the very point where he needed his friends, they disappeared. His best friends let him down. Do you know what it says about Jesus? It says this. He learned obedience he learned obedience through suffering. I can't get my head around that. He learned obedience through suffering. If Jesus had to learn some stuff, what about us? How about us learning through the problems and difficulties we have? Let me say this just to conclude. And the band, if your band could come up, be good. Um, Jesus promises this. He says, listen. He says, I will never 
tempt you or test you beyond that which you can endure. Now, sometimes it gets hot, doesn't it, in our difficulties? The heat rises. It gets difficult for us. But I want to tell you, Jesus has his hand on the thermostat. He will never let you be tested beyond what you can endure. The thing is, he knows you better than yourself. And we have to stick in there in faith. We have to keep on pressing through because ultimately we know deep in our spirit that he's never going to let us drown. When he takes us in the deep, it's not to drown us, it's to develop us. When God does something, is doing something hard in our hearts, I want to tell you, you know, we need to stay the course because he's got his hand in the thermometer. He knows what you can take. You might not know what you can take. You know, but he knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you can do in him and through him. And we need to be a people who understand these things. There are great purposes, I believe, in trials and tribulations that Christians undergo. And when we sort of focus on the purposes rather than the pain that these problems uh, uh, invariably sort of uh, bring our way, then we can do, and oh, so I say, then we can say exactly what James said. Count it pure joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials. Wouldn't that be great? Why? Because the trials develop our faith. The trials develop our perseverance. And the trials develop us as, a, as, as Christians so we become mature and complete, not lacking anything. The purpose of tests not to break us, but to make us. Let's bow our heads for a moment, shall we?